You're intelligent, beautiful, and a great writer. You really think I can write, Nick? You're a natural, Tina. That interview you did with me after I won the scholarship captured the essence of my being. Mr. Perkins says my sentence structure needs work. Your sentences are perfect, Tina," said Francois. "All your structures are perfect." Nick, what time did you say your plane leaves? Not till seven o five a.m.," replied Francois. Five minutes later, we were parked behind a used tire rack at a darkened gas station, our eager tongues exchanging the lingering flavors of cranberry sauce and sage stuffing. As I reached for the enticing convexities inside her blouse, I felt a hand slowly pull down the zipper over my throbbing te. Thunderous erection. Nick, whispered Tina. Here's a going-away present from the women of America. Three minutes later, fourteen years of dangerously compressed libido gushed into the enveloping warmth of Tina Mangan's inquisitive mouth. She didn't seem to mind. Francois, still inflamed, wanted more. Tina, he implored through the mind fog of ecstasy. Let's do it. Sorry, Nick," she said, straightening her clothes and starting the engine. "I have to be faithful to my boyfriend." Twenty-two hours later, as the world continues to heave and lurch around me, I savor those few minutes alone in the dark with Tina. Clearly, God invented this diversion as an incentive to keep us plodding on doggedly through darkest adolescence. It is the light at the end of the tunnel, a tunnel you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to identify. Yes, I made it on the plane to Bombay. No, I'm not in India. At the last minute, I slipped off the plane in Los Angeles. No way I could live twelve thousand miles from Sheeny Saunders, even if she does temporarily. I hope despise the very smog I breathe. It also helped that my seatmate. An enterprising Pakistani fellow offered me one hundred and fifty dollars in cash for my ticket, and chipped in another C note for my passport. Saturday, November twenty-second, my second day in Los Angeles. I'm staying in my sister Joni's tiny condo in Marina del Rey. It's not as cramped as you might suppose. Joni is presently out of state, slinging airline hash. Kimberly. Her cute but suspicious roommate reluctantly let me in after I divulged a few intimate details about Joni only a close family member, or IRS extortionist, could know. Still suspicious, Kimberly has refused to lend me a door key, so I haven't dared leave the apartment. To distract my feverish mind from my desperate situation, I've been watching TV and snacking from Joni's meager food stocks. All their kitchen stores are rigorously labeled as to ownership. Kimberly has consented to sell me two cans of Diet Pepsi, at somewhat above the normal retail markup. She's studying for her MBA at USC, and therefore, I expect, has been trained to see in my unexpected arrival an entrepreneurial opportunity. If I didn't need to husband my cash reserves, I'd offer to lease a door key from her. 
Every few hours, I have to erase all the frightening messages from police detectives that have accumulated on Joni's answering machine. I don't know why they imagine my sister is so well-informed as to my whereabouts. We see each other no more than twice a year, and hardly ever talk on the phone. In truth, no one in my family likes his or her relations very much. This entrenched dislike may be our strongest familial bond. In clearing the tape, I've also been wiping out some sappy messages from Philip, presumably Joni's respectably married physicist boyfriend in Santa Monica. He calls at least once an hour in a cultured but panicky voice to demand Joni quit fooling around and not do anything desperate. I don't know what that's all about, but I'm hoping it's sufficiently serious to give me some leverage over Joni in my time of need. I asked Kimberly if my sister...